0: This is the second part of a discourse that flows from 1 Corinthians 14 that I've entitled Correcting the Misuse of Tongues. And due to time, I'm not going to read the 40 verses, or I should say the 20 verses that we're going to look at this morning, but we're going to go through them very carefully in a few moments. So let me give you the context here as we immerse ourselves in the Word. What we find now is the Apostle Paul is continuing his rebuke of the saints there at Corinth for their infantile shenanigans that brought such chaos and confusion into the church, especially the practice of speaking ecstatic, unintelligible gibberish, a counterfeit version of the true gift of languages. Now, earlier in the letter, he made it clear that that true gift of languages was not evidence of proof of being baptized in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as some would have us believe. You remember in chapter 12 and verse 13, he says, "...for by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body." Well, it's obvious that not all believers that have been baptized into that one body were given the gift of tongues even in that day. And we know as well that even after Pentecost, when the, when the first miracle of languages was, was introduced and 3,000 people came to know Christ, there is no record of any of those new converts speaking in tongues. In fact, when Peter and John met with some of the disciples, we are told that they were quote, all filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 4.31, but there was no record of them speaking in tongues. Instead, the text says that they were speaking quote, the word of God with boldness. So with that background, as we come now to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, the context remember is that of public worship like we're doing here. And in Corinth, public worship had descended into a bizarre mixture of paganism and Christianity, which shouldn't surprise you. This happens all over the world today. The problem with the church is it was bereft of agape love, as we have learned. They really had no desire to build one another up in the most holy faith. Rather, they allowed unbridled emotionalism to replace reason. They even allowed nonsensical gibberish to replace comprehension and the clear proclamation of divine truth. It was time to show off. It was time to satisfy individual needs, not a time to worship God, to hear from him, to build one another up, to serve him, and so forth. And you will recall that he begins the chapter with a strong exhortation in verse 1, Pursue love. Yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So here again, he makes it clear that the true gift of languages that ceased on its own accord, as we have studied in the past, at the end of the apostolic era, that gift was inferior to the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is just merely the proclamation of divine revelation to build up the body of Christ. Again, by way of review, verse 3, he says, But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. So in other words, he's saying, folks, when you come to church, be intentional in your fellowship. Look for ways to serve. Look for ways to use your gift to build others up. It's not about you. It's not about you looking for the spotlight to show off your gift. So you can say what you want to say or sing what you want to sing or shout your ecstatic gibberish. Knock that stuff off. Don't draw attention to yourself. And now beginning in verse 20 through the end of the chapter, he continues to shepherd them. And I want to help you see the great truths that emerge from this passage of Scripture under three very simple headings. First of all, we're going to see him describe the purpose of tongues. Secondly, the principles for orderly worship. And then finally, the proper order of male-female roles in the church. So notice first the purpose of tongues. He says in verse 20, brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Now, how do children think? Well, they're desperate for attention, right? They're self-centered. They're copycats, monkey see, monkey do. They're ruled by their emotions, they're not by reason, they're they're undiscerning, they're gullible, they have no regard for anybody else, it's all about me. That's how children think. So he's saying, that's what you've been doing, stop that. And he goes on and says, yet in evil be infants. In other words, be as innocent as a newborn babe when it comes to practicing evil especially practicing some of the devious things you've been doing that's consistent with your pagan background and your pagan culture. And then he says, but in your thinking, be mature. So in other words, knock off the self-promotion, start taking on adult responsibilities, care for others, minister to others in the church, And in your understanding and application of Scripture, I just want you to grow up. That, in essence, is what he's saying. Now, there's nothing more disgusting or divisive in any church than seeing a bunch of ignorant, whiny, little thumb-sucking adult show-offs trying to get attention. And if you've been in those churches, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's ridiculous. I, I remember... My mind can immediately get flooded with those situations that I've experienced over the years in ministry. I remember one very controlling lady years ago attending our church and she embraced several forms of, of false doctrine and, and, um, she was thinking about joining the church and, and she came up to me and said, you know, a pastor, I would like to sign, you know, sign language. I would like to sign while you, while we sing in the worship service. And I said, well, there's no people that are deaf here in the church. I mean, why would we do that? And I remember her saying, well, I know, but that's my spiritual gift, and and it will add beauty to the worship service. And I remember trying to be as kind as I could, but uh, I said, well, signing is not a spiritual gift, and it's not going to add beauty to the worship service. It's going to point people to you rather than to Christ. Well, needless to say, that didn't go over very well. I think that was her last Sunday, unfortunately. But it's this type of thing that can happen in any church. So Paul is saying, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. And by the way, maturation only occurs with the systematic, in-depth teaching, preaching, and application of the Word of God. We see Paul describing this, for example, in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 14. He said, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to, here it is, grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Well, next he treats them now as thinking adults, as mature adults. And what he's going to do is loosely translate Isaiah 28, beginning in verse 11 through verse 12. And the context there is where God warned the southern kingdom of Judah of impending judgment that was going to fall upon them because of their unbelief, their apostasy, their immorality, and so forth. And so in verse 21, Paul says this to them. In the law, it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Well, and we know, as promised, in 605 B.C., the Babylonians swept down upon... Judah and, and utterly destroyed to them, taking many into captivity. It's interesting that God gave the same warning to other prophets. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 15, we read, Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. By the way, the same fate had fallen the northern kingdom of Israel some 15 years earlier at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 BC. But both the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions upon Israel and Judah were prophesied by God's servant Moses some 800 years before Isaiah's prophecy. Now bear with me, this is very important. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 49, we read this, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. And you will remember your Old Testament history. Unfortunately, the, the, the people of Israel later on, they... they They believed the deceptions of their false teachers, of their false leaders, who would preach peace and peace. But there was no peace, and we know what happened. So what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 14 is Paul is using these prophecies concerning strange tongues to help the saints in Corinth understand that the gift of languages was given solely to unbelieving Israel as a, a sign of impending judgment upon them. And as we will see in a moment, also a sign of verification as well as blessing. You will remember at Pentecost when the house of Israel heard the strange tongues once again. They should have realized, oh my goodness, judgment is coming upon us once more. And Peter made it abundantly clear in his sermon in Acts 2 that that was exactly what was happening. Remember in Acts 2, beginning in verse 22, men of Israel, he says, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and put him to death. And in verse 36, he went on to say, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And we know that in 70 A.D., judgment fell upon them once again. When the Romans invaded Jerusalem, utterly destroyed it, Along with the temple, they slaughtered 1.1 million Jews, took about 97,000 away into captivity as slaves. Josephus tells us that Titus and his soldiers celebrated victory upon their return to Rome by parading the the menorah and the the table of bread of God's presidents through um, the, 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 the streets of Rome. By the way, those were items that could only be seen by the priests. So judgment fell upon them. So the point with all of this, as we go back to verse 21, Paul is, is, is helping them understand that the gift of tongues needs to be equated with judgment. It was a sign to unbelieving Israel. I might also add, and we don't have time to go through all the passages, but it's also Uh, the, The true gift of languages was a sign of verification or authentication. It was a miraculous way of authenticating both the message and the messenger of the new covenant, as were the signs and wonders and miracles performed by the prophets and by the apostles. Moreover, it was a sign of blessing to the Gentiles, that were now being grafted into the covenant root of, of Abrahamic blessing and made part of the church, made up of all the nations in which there is neither Jew nor Greek. And I might even add that it was also a sign of blessing for future Israel. Speaking of how Israel's blindness and hardening uh, and, and apostasy are not irreversible, Paul says this in Romans 11, beginning at verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And if you read Romans eleven twenty five through 27, we see that the, the period between the two comings of Christ is characterized by, by Gentile salvation. And I'm glad that's the case. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Most of you wouldn't be here. It's characterized by Gentile salvation. But we read prophetically that when Jesus comes again, the nation Israel, a remnant of them will be saved and they will be restored. And even greater blessing will come to the world during the Messianic Kingdom when when Israel as a nation believes in her Messiah. So back to verse 21, Paul is saying, Corinthians, I want you to grow up. Start thinking and acting like adults, not like children. The, the gift of language was languages was, was, was a gift to unbelieving Israel as a sign not only of coming judgment, but also to authenticate the message and the messengers of, of the new covenant gospel and a sign of blessing for Jews and Gentiles. Jews that will be the natural branches grafted back into their own olive tree, according to Romans eleven twenty four. 24. Now, I want you to think about this. And even though we don't see all of this in this particular text, remember that these letters, uh, there, there was much more that was said that wasn't recorded. But think about this. Now that Israel has been judged in A.D. 70... And now that the New Testament canon is complete and there's no more need to authenticate the message and the messenger, and now that the church has been established, dear friends, there's no longer a need for a sign, the sign of the tongues. You come down 24 out of Paducah, for example, because I've done this many times, and somewhere along the way you'll see see a sign that says Nashville 120 miles. You keep coming, there's another sign, Nashville, I don't know, 100 miles. And then you'll see a sign, maybe Nashville, 50 miles. Well, once you get to Nashville, guess what? There's no more sign. It's not necessary. And that's Paul's point with all of this. Verse 22, so then tongues are for a sign, he says, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And he says, but prophecy is for a sign. Now, let me pause here for a moment. The phrase, notice, in your Bibles is in italics. The phrase is for a sign, and that's really unnecessary, I believe. And by the way, that's that's not in the Greek text because the gift of prophecy is is not a sign. It would be better translated leaving that out, but prophecy is not to unbelievers but to those who believe. And we know that according to verses 4 and verse 31, prophecy is for the purpose of edification, what I'm doing right now is the purpose, has the purpose of edifying you. So Paul begins here with the purpose of tongues, and secondly, he moves now into the principles for orderly worship. Notice verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Remember, the ungifted, they are the idiotes, they are the uninitiated ones, the ignorant ones that aren't a member of the group, they don't know what's going on. Can you imagine if we're all doing that unintelligible gibberish and we're carrying on with all this chaos and people come in here and, well, what's going on? They, they think we were a bunch of pagans doing what those pagans did in that day. And that's what he's saying here. And even if it were the true gift of language, languages and not the ecstatic speech, if all a visitor hears is foreign languages, he's going to think, my goodness, th- th- these are just a-, a bunch of crazy pagans doing what they do down the street here in Corinth. Verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. We know according to John 16 and verse 8, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And how does that happen? Through the proclamation of the word. That's what Paul is talking about here. By the way, Sunday school teachers, remember this. Wi-Fi leaders, remember this. Any of you, parents, as you teach your children, remember this. The word of God is the most powerful weapon on earth. It will either harden or soften a heart when it is proclaimed. That's what it's doing right here, right now. Whenever it is preached, God is up to something. We never know how or when, but it will accomplish what God intends. Verse 25, he gives an example. He says, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. This is what happens when it's preached, unlike tongues that you all are focusing on the secrets of his heart are disclosed. I think of Hebrews 4.12. We're all familiar with that great text. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge both the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what it does. So indeed, when the word is proclaimed, verse 25, the secrets of the heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. That's what you want, rather than people saying, my goodness, these people are mad. These people are crazy. And this is what happens when the Spirit of God uses the preaching, the teaching of his word. He brings conviction to bear upon those whose hearts he is softening. He brings men and women to a place of contrition and a place of self-condemnation and a place of genuine repentance. By the way, everything that we do here at Calvary Bible Church has that in mind. That's why the Word is the priority, as it should be in every church. We want to see sinners converted. We want to see saints edified and encouraged. Thinking of this, I I was reminded of something that I had written years ago. It's on our website, just a little snippet. It says this, in a society that applauds compromise and prefers tolerance to truth, we believe it is our duty to remain distinctively the church of Jesus Christ. We believe it is our difference from the world that attracts people to Christ, not our similarity with it. Therefore, as we endeavor to remain faithful to Scripture, we are committed to the following biblical mandates. And this is kind of a summary of where Paul is going with all of this. To maintain a high view of God, ever mindful that we exist for his glory, he does not exist for our glory. Maintain the divine purposes of the church, namely to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. Maintain a commitment to the absolute authority, sufficiency, inerrancy, and inspiration of scripture. Maintain a commitment to teach sound doctrine, allowing doctrinal precision to separate truth from error. Maintain a commitment to personal holiness, avoiding spiritual and moral compromise that would grieve the Holy Spirit and put us to shame before our enemies. And finally, maintain a high degree of readiness as we live in anticipation of our Lord's imminent return. And obviously, none of this is going to happen apart from, as I say, the systematic, in-depth teaching, preaching, and application of Scripture, the gift of prophecy, which is Paul's point. So he continues his rebuke now, and he's going to expose their, their lack of love. He's going to expose their, their rabid commitment to self-expression, to, to self-gratification and self-glory. He says in verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm. By the way, it could be translated song. They could have sung a psalm, who knows? could have been read, but it's probably a song. Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. In other words, they're all competing to be heard. That's his point. Everybody's speaking at the same time. It's chaos. And he closes this section. He just says, let all things be done for edification. You see, folks, this is the purpose of spiritual gifts. And even in a church, just because you have some quiver in your liver and you feel like you need to get up and sing something or say something, we don't do that for this reason. I remember years ago, I would have several people, one lady in particular, she would come up and and say, Pastor, God has laid a song on my heart and I'd like to sing it today. And I remember saying, well, you know, it's interesting. He hasn't laid that on my heart, so what should we do here? And I'll tell you what, when he lays your song on my heart, then we will consider that. But you see, the point is, a gift is to be used for edification. And I knew in that particular case that wasn't what was going on. But I think you understand the point here. And if everybody just kind of does what they feel like they want to do, you're going to have chaos. That's what was going on. So he says, let all things be done for edification. By the way, other people want to just come to church, slip in, slip out, just disappear. Just don't be seen, just, just leave me alone. It's kind of like going to a restaurant, you know. You, you go to a restaurant, you just want to be served, have a good meal, and then just leave me alone. But folks, that's not what the church is all about. It's a place to come to worship and to serve. First Thessalonians 5.11, therefore, encourage one another, Paul says, and build up one another, just as also you are doing. Romans 14.19, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Is that your motivation when you come here today? Lord, help me see those opportunities that you've placed all around me to build someone up, to encourage them, to speak truth into their life, to care for them, whatever it might be. That's my priority when I come to worship. That wasn't going on, obviously, in Corinth. Romans 15, verse 2, "...let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself." So, folks, this has to be the mindset. But understand that edification cannot occur apart from order, apart from comprehension. So he goes on in verse 27, If anyone speaks in a tongue, now let me pause here for a a moment. Paul uses the singular tongue, the singular for tongue, throughout the chapter to refer to the counterfeit gibberish. But here he uses the singular to correspond to the singular subject, which is anyone. So anyone at a given time could only speak in one language. I want to clarify that. And again, verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. By the way, in in Greek, one must interpret. The the one is in the emphatic position. Evidently, there was a problem with the interpreters trying to show off as well, like the tongue speakers, people that wanted to dominate the worship service. So so this is going to put an end to all of that kind of tomfoolery. Verse 28, but if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Said differently, if there's no interpreter, God wants you to keep your mouth shut. Just meditate on the truth you have in your heart and commune with with God privately and silently. So the, the summary here of regulations is this. Only two, at the most three, were to speak in tongues, in the legitimate tongues, plural, meaning languages during the service, but only one at a time and with one interpreter. By the way, evidently, one interpreter could interpret a number of different languages. That was part of their gift. And we know that the ability to speak in a foreign language that a person had never learned as well as the ability to interpret a language you had never learned were, were two distinct gifts. And sometimes they could have been overlapped, we, we don't know for sure, but they both had to be used together. Bottom line, no interpreter, no tongue. That's what he's saying here. Let's get some order in this worship service. He then turns to those with the gift of prophecy, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the other others pass judgment. Now, it's important for you to remember that at this point in the early days of the nascent church, the the, the, the baby church, the, the office of, of pastor, teacher, and, uh, and of elders, and leadership, as well as deacons and deaconesses as servants, none of that had yet been implemented. All there were were apostles and prophets. That's all they had. There were no pastors, not until later on. And occasionally, God would, would give these prophets, like the apostles, new revelation to instruct the church. But but most of the time, they're merely repeating uh, the, the teachings of Christ and the apostles. In fact, we read in Ephesians 2 and verse 20, Paul says that speaking of God's household, the church, he says it was, quote, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now I might add that later on in the pastoral epistles first and second Timothy and Titus we see the role of prophet ceases to function before the end of the apostolic era and then they are replaced by pastors elders uh and and in, in, in leadership those with the speaking gifts and then there were deacons and deaconesses and the serving as uh, servants using servant gifts and all of this compromised or comprise both the leadership and the service personnel of the church. And we see the leadership history of the church summarized in Ephesians 4.11. Notice what he says. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, which, by the way, is the gift of, of church planting. Don't think of Billy Graham necessarily when you hear the word evangelist in our, in our language, in our English culture and some as pastors, and teachers, or it could be translated pastor-teacher. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. But as we see here in verse 29, he's saying that only two, at the most three prophets, were to speak at a worship service. And then on top of that, other discerning men, probably other prophets, had to hear what was spoken and discern whether or not What was said is inspired, or is it accurate? Verse 30, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Let's don't have all this, everybody speaking at the same time, And notice the priority here, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. You see, learning and exhortation has to be the priorities, And that requires one person speaking at a time. Now, obviously, the the point with all of this, if there was some kind of new revelation, my goodness, that's going to take precedence over existing revelation. So if someone has that, then others need to sit down. Let's hear what God is saying here through the prophet. By the way, thankfully, because the New Testament canon is, 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 is completed, none of these things are an issue today. We don't have prophets, we don't have new revelations, and so forth. And, and this, I might add, is, is why false teachers who are constantly claiming that they're receiving new revelation must be avoided. And boy, this, there's just an explosion of this. You, you just hear it, hear it all the time, I, I, I was listening even to, I mean, obviously you're going to hear it in the charismatic movement where they're, they're constantly doing this with, with charismatic leaders, but, I was listening to some of even Beth Moore, and she's constantly talking about how God is telling her this and telling her that and and how she's cutting up with God and all of this type of thing and and how he instructs her to do things and it's typically really bizarre things. And I think of Sarah Young as well, the the author of that best-selling devotional called Jesus Calling. Maybe some of you have read that. I've spoke about this before. She claims Jesus himself gave her the words to re- re- to write, and that she was merely a quote, listener. Um, she admits that she believes the Bible is insufficient. She says, quote, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. And of course, with that mindset, that initiates the whole quest for extra biblical revelation. And I might also add that that is a clear abandonment of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura and a direct contradiction, contradiction to numerous passages of scripture that speak to the absolute total sufficiency of scripture. Verse 32, he says, And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. In other words, the spirit of every true Prophet was ultimately, we know, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and therefore each prophet had to be self control He he had to have his spirit under control. He couldn't be out of control. He had to be a, a man that was, that, that was able to restrain his impulses and speak, speak the divine truths that would be confirmed by other prophets. So there had to be discernment. There had to be accountability. You can't just get up and start yakking. And that's what was going on. By the way, if if you think about this, I mean, we know that the Father seeks worshipers who worship him in what? In spirit and in truth. In other words, the emotion has to be regulated by the mind. The subjective has to be regulated by the objective. Um, you, You can't just have some ecstatic emotional stupor and and speak whatever you want. That's not, that's not worship. And so the emotions have to be regulated by the truth. I might also add this, and I know at some level I'm speaking to the choir here or preaching to the choir, but it's so important for you to remember this, folks. Wherever you see people Naming the name of Christ. And in their worship services, you see these, these bizarre behaviors, like being slain in the spirit. Maybe you've seen that. If you've been around it, it's, it's, it's literally frightening to watch. Or people having seizures and, 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 and hypnosis and all of the hysteria. Or people lying all around the floor of an auditorium in varying stages of catalepsy. I mean, whenever you see that kind of thing, which, by the way, just dominates Pentecostal and Charismatic services. Be sure that that's of Satan and of the flesh. It's not of God. I don't know how more clearly I can put that to you. Verse 33, Paul addresses this. He says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Folks, all true worship is intelligent. It is is able to be comprehended. It is orderly. And by the way, it also always points people to Christ, never to the Holy Spirit or never to another person. The Holy Spirit came to point us to Christ, not to himself, and certainly not to the preacher or whoever else is dancing around doing their thing. You know, I was reflecting upon this. I mean, think about it. We know that God himself reveals himself in both creation and in Scripture, and certainly in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that that God has written two books, one of natural revelation and one of special revelation, one of creation and one of the Bible, of Scripture. And in both cases, when we look at whether it's creation or special revelation, we see perfection, we see order, we see intricate design that displays the breathtaking beauty of his nature. Nothing is chaotic. Nothing is random. Even the inviolable laws of physics are, are designed to perfectly sustain his creation and the beauty of all that he has made. I mean, I mean, think of the intricate order, the unbelievable order of a strand of DNA. Have you ever seen that? It is absolutely mind boggling. There's nothing chaotic about it. Every human being has order in every aspect of his or her body. Every snowflake is a beautiful design, unique in and of itself. Nothing random but everything is exquisitely designed with, with incomprehensible complexity and organization. So, folks, there, there's no randomness, there's no discord, there's no chaos in anything that God has created, anything that He has ordained, or anything that He has revealed in His Word. And He intends that His nature be faithfully reflected in his worship and in the way his truth is proclaimed. That's why we, are, we take such great care with the word of God. I want you to notice in the first part of verse 33, he says, for God is not a God of confusion. The word could be translated upheaval, disorder, chaos, but of peace. That could be translated perfect harmony, perfect order, as opposed to conflict and chaos and disorder. So verse 32, he says, And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. In other words, for you prophets in the church of Corinth, you need to have control of your spirit. Don't succumb to this unbridled emotionalism anymore. Allow the Holy Spirit to communicate his truth through you, in a very orderly and comprehensible way that reflects the nature and the perfections of our holy God. Now, drop down to verse 39, Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid, forbid to speak in tongues. In other words, the languages, they're still in play at that time. But all things must be done properly, could be translated gracefully, decorously, harmoniously, beautifully. And in an orderly manner, and part of God's properly proper and orderly manner includes the third and final point that we see emerge from the text here today, and that is the proper order of male and female roles in the church. In verse thirty-three, it says, "As in all the churches of the saints." Then, in verse thirty-four, the women are to keep silent in the churches. Well, let me explain this. Remember the context here. The mistreatment of women sparked a feminist movement in the Roman Empire. Some refused to bear children and to raise children because it would ruin their figure. We can read about this in historical accounts. Many of them lived separate lives from their husbands. Uh, uh, they liked to compete with men in feats of street, strength. And some attended chariot races, we read about, dressed like men. And some became women wrestlers. Um, one of the most bizarre things is that uh, some of them like to wear helmets and go topless on a horse and hunt wild boars with a spear. I mean, so this is some of the crazy stuff that was going on in that day. And then all of a sudden, God comes along with the grace and the glory of the gospel. And Christianity finally brings dignity and honor to women. But as you might expect, swimming upstream against that culture was was difficult, and it raised many questions of the roles of men and women. And you will recall when we studied chapter 11, apparently some of the Corinthian women believed that the role distinctions uh, between the sexes were abolished in Christ. They, they, they claimed equality in function. They exceeded the bounds of propriety by by failing to wear the customary female head Head covering when they prayed and and how they conducted themselves in 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 and outside the church and obviously their conduct had played a role in the chaos and the confusion that was going on in the services and evidently there were women who contributed to all of this so in verse 33 b it says as in all the churches of the saints the women are to keep silent in the churches so a pro- prohibition against both speaking in tongues and prophesying and preaching and ministry, teaching ministries, all of that was, was made for the women here. It's consistent with the context. And I might add the phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, really has no pertinent connection to the previous verse. And and the original language, it could just as easily be a part of the, the the next verse. So it, it, it has no logical relationship with, for God is not a God of confusion but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. That makes no sense. But when it's connected to verse 34, it actually parallels chapter 11 and verse 16. There we read, if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the have the churches of God. So really, what Paul is saying here to them is no Christian church, no Christian church permits women to speak in public in the context of their worship services. So don't think that we're singling you out just because of the problem of feminism that's going on that's plaguing your church. But then he adds to the prohibition, the the weight of his apostolic authority and of Scripture itself. At the end of verse 34, he says, For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. The law referring to the Old Testament principles of maleness and femaleness, male and female, um, the headship and submission reaffirmed in the New Testament. That's God's design, uh, Paul stated the same principle in 1 Timothy 2.11, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Back to the text, Paul says in verse 35, If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper. It could be translated literally, ugly. Unacceptable, shameful, disgraceful. It is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, for a moment, let me take you back to 1 Corinthians 11. You remember there, Paul provides a biblical worldview of manhood and womanhood. Male-female role relationships, especially as they relate to matters of authority and submission, are to reflect the relationship that exists with the triune Godhead, and though men and women are created equal in their essential dignity, they are different. This is part of God's design. You will re- recall the whole, the whole head-covering issue, a way that women in that culture symbolized their subordinate relationship to the men. It communi- communicated a submissive demeanor, as did other kinds of feminine adornment. And it symbolized their joyful acceptance of God's role for them as a woman. And so how a woman, by the way, those things, as we discussed before, they're they're not relevant in our culture. They look differently in our culture. But how a woman worships and ministers should always be done in a way that indicates her submission and her and to, to the authority of male leadership and her joy of godly femininity—something that's being lost in our culture today—so there is a direct relationship between women taking leadership, especially in a church, and the loss of femininity. Even among many evangelical leaders, we we see. This today. Women embracing some of the, 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 the cultural views of feminism with an unbiblical egalitarianism where basically everybody needs to be equal in the church and there's no role distinction and women should be able to do whatever men do and all of this type of thing. And there's, there's many examples of all of this. May I remind you that most all of the cults were started by women? Female leadership is a hallmark of of, uh, of the charismatic movement and the Pentecostal movement and much of liberal evangelicalism, where you even see lesbian pastors being ordained and so forth. And so he, he stated that divine principle of subordination and authority that was misunderstood in chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. And so all of this speaks of Of headship and submission. So God's plan has nothing to do with inferiority, but rather, or superiority, but a reflection of the Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son. He even went on to say in verses 8 and 9, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And So these magnificent truths just describe the order that God has given to the church that we need to hear. And while while women are, uh, or while I should say the woman is directly the glory of man, uh, not of God, as Paul says, she is fully and equally made in the image of God. And so Paul describes just the outshining of the glory of God in the woman. So even as we come to this text here, Understand that he is in no way being a chauvinist, as some would have you believe. I also want to add, um, there are so many ways God calls and gifts women to do so many remarkable things. Some of the most powerful ways God has impacted my life have been through women. And that continues to happen even through my wife and many of you here. But God never calls a woman, never leads a woman, and never gifts a woman to fulfill leadership roles reserved for men. And whenever that's violated, the spirit is going to be quenched. He's going to be grieved. Chaos is going to ensue in a church. Unbiblical practices will begin to happen, and you will see nothing but problems. So, with biting sarcasm, Obviously, some people didn't like what he was saying, as people don't like to hear this today. Verse 36, he says, was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you? In other words, are you the mother of all Christians, you Corinthians, that think you know everything? Did you receive direct revelation from God regarding the gospel, regarding instructions concerning all of these things that I'm describing here? Obviously not. So he's saying, so submit to the Holy Spirit. Verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, in other words, if he or she thinks she is inspired by God, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. So in other words, if you're really going to be spiritual, you're going to submit to my apostolic authority because I speak the words of God. First John 4 and verse 6, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And finally, he says, but if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, if anyone is ignorant of these things or if anyone ignores these divine principles, And ignores the authority of these instructions concerning the purpose of tongues, for example, uh, the principles for orderly worship, the proper order for male-female roles in the church. Let that person be ignored. Said differently, if they have a disregard for Scripture, if they twist Scripture, if they refuse to submit to Scripture, those are the marks of a false teacher. So ignore them. Have nothing to do with them. Don't give them the floor. Don't answer them when they raise their hand. Don't read their books. Don't go to their seminars. Have nothing to do with them. Well, dear Christian, our time is way past gone. Thank you for indulging this. I wanted to get through all of it, and I've enjoyed hearing the competition with the thunder. Isn't it great after this drought to hear that? But may I close by saying, God is serious about his instructions. And even though many of these instructions may be contrary to what you have heard or what you believe, these are the words of the living God. And so let's use our gifts consistently with the way they were intended, and that is to build up one another. And together we will bask in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these truths. May they bear much fruit in our hearts for our good and ultimately for your glory. We give you praise in all things. In Christ's name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.